On a balmy afternoon in late 1991, 24-year-old Christoph Rokenkor wandered aimlessly up La Cienega Boulevard in Los Angeles, California. As a native Frenchman who had never traveled outside of Europe, he was in awe as he passed by streets he had only read about in magazines. Beverly Boulevard and Melrose Avenue, just as he'd imagined, bleached with sunshine and speckled with palm trees swaying back and forth in the warm breeze. Christophe turned toward the swarm of paparazzi standing outside of a restaurant and watched as a limousine sped away from the throng of flashing cameras. He walked toward the entrance, unable to comprehend how anyone would want to steer clear of such undivided attention. The marquee above the door read Café Maurice and Christophe grinned. A French restaurant. C'est parfait. Christophe settled at a table and glanced about the room, hoping to spot someone famous. No such luck. He sipped his glass of ice water, calmly assessing his situation. First and foremost, he needed a place to stay. He had brought a little bit of cash with him, but by no means did he have enough to afford an apartment or even a hotel room for more than a night or two. If he wanted free lodging, he'd need a friend. And if he wanted to make a friend in a place like Café Maurice, he'd have to pretend to be someone else. No one would be interested in letting Christophe Rokencourt, poor, orphan and wanted criminal, sleep on their couch. But Christopher Rokencourt, famed European boxer in town for a fight, well, that man might be offered a spare bedroom. He turned to the gentleman sitting at the table next to him and produced an incredibly disarming, captivating smile. Excusez-moi, monsieur. Do you speak French? Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. This is our first episode covering the rise of Christophe Rocancourt, a French conman also known as the Swindler of the Stars. In today's episode, we'll discuss Christophe's turbulent childhood and detail the beginnings of his criminal career, which took him from France to Switzerland and then all the way to Los Angeles, California. Next week, we'll cover Christophe's miraculous ability to continuously escape a lengthy punishment at the hands of law enforcement, despite being hunted for crimes across the globe. We'll also examine how this prolific con artist has managed to remain a free man today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Christophe Rocancourt is a grifter who, over the course of 30 years, managed to transform himself from a poor French orphan to a rich Hollywood socialite. Everyone thought he was someone different. On the West Coast, some knew him as Christopher De Laurentiis, and others knew him as Christopher De Laurenta. In the Hamptons, folks thought his name was Christopher Rockefeller. He told people he was a prince, a prize fighter, and a member of the French nobility. He wooed women left and right, which resulted in a couple of marriages, a few affairs, and several children. Though one could say he reached the height of his criminal career in the late 90s, early 2000s, Christophe is, today, a free man. Christophe Thierry Daniel Rocancourt was born on July 16, 1967, in a coastal French town called Enfleur. His parents were Daniel Rocancourt, an alcoholic house painter, and Annick Villers, a 17-year-old sex worker. The couple wed just one month before Christophe was born. Along with his younger sister, Angelina, Christophe spent the first two years of his life living with his parents in a mobile home in Conville, a rural commune located a short distance away from the port of Enfleur. His infancy was miserable. His parents fought constantly, often over the fact that Annick would leave the baby's home alone for indeterminate amounts of time while she went to work in the city with her sister. In 1969, Danielle and Annick ended their relationship and abandoned their children. Danielle moved to Belgium, and Annick left Christophe and Angelina with her parents, who lived in a two-room hovel that lacked running water or electricity. Three years later, Danielle returned to Enfleur and reassumed his duties as a father. However, after a string of girlfriends rejected Christophe and Angelina, he gave up on them once again. In 1976, Danielle placed his children in an orphanage in Saint-Germain village. By the age of nine, Christophe had already experienced significant amounts of abuse and neglect. 
these painful experiences may have influenced his proclivity for delinquency in adulthood. A psychological study published in April 2016 in the journal Criminal Behavior and Mental Health sought to discover which forms of harm to children were most likely to be associated with criminal behavior later in life. Psychologists Catherine Howell, Asa Carter, Laura Miller-Graff, Laura Schwartz, and Sandra Graham-Berman examined data from a representative sample of 2,224 young Swedish adults, making sure to distinguish between the different types of victimization each adult reported. Their study concluded that childhood experiences of verbal abuse, sexual abuse, and property offenses were not highly associated with later criminal activity. But the early traumas of physical abuse, witnessing physical violence, and neglect were all significantly related to criminality in adulthood. Christoph Rokenkor was an extremely neglected child, one who had been left alone as a toddler and then abandoned multiple times by both of his parents. While the adversity he experienced in childhood cannot possibly hold the sole explanation for his later deviant behavior, it may take responsibility for some of it. After Danielle ditched Christoph at the orphanage, he stayed there for three years. He was described as a bright and sensitive child, a boy with a definitive aversion to authority and a talkative charm that always got him out of trouble. Though he continuously dreamt of reuniting with his father, in July of 1979, 12-year-old Christoph was instead adopted by a family who lived just outside Le Neubor, another small town in Normandy. Christoph's adoptive father was tough on the boy. A former member of the military, he valued discipline above all. Christoph tried to run away from home several times throughout his adolescence. In 1985, just after his 18th birthday, Christoph abruptly left home and moved to Paris, where he decided to reinvent himself for the very first time. Christoph started introducing himself to people as Prince de Galitsin. He told everyone he was a Russian nobleman and began dabbling in delinquency. Christoph's first foray into a life of crime did not bode well for his future. Most people did not buy into his Russian alias, and he was reportedly jailed five times between 1987 and 1992 for petty theft, forgery, and counterfeiting. But Christoph persevered, and in his efforts, he discovered that perhaps he was not meant to roam the city committing minor offenses. Perhaps he was meant for bigger scams. Still posing as Prince de Galitsin, he found himself a rich girlfriend. Her father owned a large property in the middle of Paris. Christophe forged the deeds to that building and sold it for $1.4 million, solidifying his knack for the art of swindling. After getting a taste of the big time, Christophe was not interested in going back to the world of petty crime. He had larger aspirations now and a thirst for risk. On September 15, 1991, just across the French border in Geneva, Switzerland, a woman was held hostage overnight in her apartment by three armed men. 
Early the next morning, they dragged her to the jewelry store where she worked and forced her to open the safe. The men stole $400,000 worth of merchandise, then hopped into their getaway car, hoping to escape the scene as fast as possible. Unfortunately, the police were waiting for them, and the men were forced to flee on foot. It was a tricky situation, but a successful one for Christoph Rokenkor, who was fingered as one of the suspects, but never caught. He was, however, officially a wanted man. He had to make a break for it. And he knew exactly where he wanted to abscond. Christoph Rokenkor had barely landed in Los Angeles when he sat down at Café Maurice and convinced the man sitting next to him, a wine salesman named Charles Glenn, that he was a famous boxer in town for a fight. Charles was also a native Frenchman, which proved lucky for Christophe, who did not yet speak much English. The two men struck up an immediate friendship. Charles let Christophe sleep on his couch for a period of several months, taking him out to clubs and introducing him to other Frenchmen in the area. Christophe repaid Charles's kindness by swindling several of his friends. One of them, Pierre Lang, was in the midst of a long and frustrating remodel of his Bel Air home and couldn't afford to continue renovations. In what appeared to be an altruistic gesture, Christophe offered to buy the property from Pierre and take the problem off his hands. He couldn't offer payment right away, but he would have it ready for Pierre shortly, as soon as a recent investment came through. Then, Christophe presented Pierre with a paid vacation to Portugal, suggesting that he relax abroad and shake off some stress. Christophe promised he would wire Pierre the money for the house while he was overseas. Pierre took his new friend at his word and left to enjoy his holiday, unaware Christophe had paid for the trip by stealing another one of Charles's friend's credit cards. Christophe moved into Pierre's Bella home and lived there rent-free for several months. Eventually, Pierre grew irate at the fact that he hadn't received any money from Christophe and decided to return to Los Angeles. Because neither Pierre nor Christophe could afford to keep the house, the bank foreclosed on the property, leaving Pierre with a stain on his credit history and without a place to live. Despite Christophe's questionable behavior, Charles Glenn continued to socialize with him. In fact, it was due to a bet with Charles that Christophe tried to win the heart of a young woman named Gris Park, a woman who, within a year, would become his first wife. Coming up, Christophe and Gris embark on a whirlwind romance. Hi, it's Alastair. And I have some exciting news. The newest Spotify original from Parcast is unlike anything you've heard before. It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. 
you'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After landing in Los Angeles in September of 1991, 24-year-old Christophe Rochengore spent the next several months fraternizing with other French expats. Most of them were introduced to him by his new friend, Charles Glenn. Charles often took Christophe out in the town where they explored the LA nightclub and restaurant scene. Christophe was finally living the high life he had always felt he deserved. One night in June 1992, Charles took Christophe to the Bar One Club, and as they walked in, Christophe locked eyes with a beautiful young woman stationed at the coat check. As they walked to the bar, Christophe bet his friend that he could get the coat check girl to go on a date with him. Charles laughed and readily took that bet. Not only was the stunning woman out of Christophe's league, but she had also been reading the Bible while at work. She didn't seem like the type to say yes to a date with a foreign stranger. Christophe sent Charles over with a note for her, describing Christophe's love for the Lord and asking her out to dinner. The woman, an aspiring actress named Gree Park, said no. So Christophe Rochencourt came back to Bar One the next night and asked her again. Once more, Gree rejected him. But Christophe would not take no for an answer. Every night for the next six weeks, he returned to the bar and sat with Gree in the coat check room. He told her he was Christopher De Laurentiis, the nephew of famous film producer Dino De Laurentiis, and proclaimed to love the Lord as much as she did. Though he couldn't get her to go on a date, she did get him to accompany her to church, where Gree remembers him crying throughout the service. She saw him as a desperately sad man with a hard heart, a man who wanted to change. Christophe did eventually wear Gree down, and she began spending time with him outside the Kochek room. In October of 1992, after spending most of the previous five months together, they impulsively decided to get married in Las Vegas. It was at the chapel that Gree learned Christophe's real last name was Rochencourt, but under the spell of new love, she chose to ignore his lie and proceed with the wedding anyway. 
Back in Los Angeles, they moved into a suite at the Peninsula Beverly Hills Hotel, and Gree became pregnant with their first child. They should have been in a honeymoon phase, enjoying their lavish lifestyle and dreaming of their bright future. Instead, the couple fought relentlessly. Creditors kept calling, demanding money, and as Gree got closer to her husband, she realized she didn't actually know him at all. She had never met his famous uncle, let alone his parents. None of his family had even called to congratulate them on their wedding. Eventually, she left him. Several months pregnant, she moved out of the hotel suite and into an apartment with her sister all the way in San Francisco. Christoph followed Gris upstate. He moved to Sausalito and, still using the name Christopher De Laurentiis, swindled several wealthy residents after claiming he was in the market for a vineyard. All the while, he was continually pestering Gris. He called her constantly, frantically begging her to take him back. Fed up with his behavior and worried for her own safety, Gris made a big decision and called the FBI. She didn't think anything would come of her call. If anything, she was hoping to get more information on her husband. But when she told the operator she was married to a man named Christopher Rokencore and that she'd be willing to help the FBI find him, she was immediately connected to an agent. Calling the FBI on her husband was a brave move by Gree. It's not an action that most victims of stalking can bring themselves to take. In a 2011 study published in the Journal of Interpersonal Violence, psychologists Leila Dutton and Barbara Winstead sought to explore the types, frequency, and effectiveness of responses to unwanted pursuit and stalking after a relationship has been ended. After extensive discussion with a sample of both targets and pursuers, they discovered that making a geographical change and taking legal action were not the most common responses to stalking, but they were the most effective in terms of getting the behavior to stop. Both the targets and the pursuers felt that other responses, such as avoidance, aggressive confrontation, and joint counseling, were less effective strategies in deterring the pursuer. Though Gris' location change did not discourage Christophe, she hoped that contacting law enforcement would force him to leave her alone. But in order for that to happen, she had to help the FBI catch him. Gris was surprised at the FBI's immediate response to her call. Agent Mark Irish explained that Christophe was wanted in Switzerland for the jewelry heist back in 1991 and that Interpol had recently gotten a tip that he had been spotted in the Sausalito area. After Interpol contacted the FBI, it became Agent Irish's job to track down Christoph Rokencore, but he hadn't had any luck yet. That is, until Gree gave them a call. The FBI placed an incoming trace on the phone at Gree's sister's house, hoping to track Christopher down whenever he called to talk. Unfortunately, Christoph was too smart for them. He had clearly accounted for the possibility of a trace, and his calls would always appear to be coming in from different locations. The FBI would scramble to check a phone in Los Angeles one day and in New York City the next, 
never finding where Christoph was actually calling from. Eventually, they asked Gree to schedule a call with Christoph during a specific time frame. She told Christoph she was moving and this call would be his last chance to speak to her again. Christoph called during the appointed time and during his tearful goodbye, the FBI traced his location to Las Vegas, where a team arrested him shortly thereafter. Christoph was taken to Geneva to face charges for the jewelry robbery, but due to insufficient evidence, the case did not end up going to trial. Rather than let Christoph go, the Swiss police turned him into the French, who locked him up on old swindling charges. Christoph was in prison from 1994 to 1995, during which time he incessantly called and wrote letters to Gris and their newborn daughter. Even though Gris claims to have been driven crazy by his constant contact, she still went to Paris to see Christophe when he was released and even briefly allowed their romance to be rekindled. When they came back to California, Gris saw the error of her ways and split from Christophe once again, which drove him back to his same stalking behavior. One night, while she was hosting a prayer meeting at her house, Christophe sat on the sidewalk outside, weeping for hours. Gris didn't buy his act, but Marjorie, another woman at the meeting, took pity on him and allowed him to stay on her couch for several months. Together, Christophe and Marjorie tried to convince Gris that Christophe was a new man, that God had changed him for the better. But nothing, they said, could convince Gris that her ex-husband was anything other than a liar and a fraud. Less than one year later, Gris' instincts about Christophe proved to be right. The man who had professed his undying love for her, who claimed to have transformed and found God, went off and married a Playboy playmate. Christophe met model Pia Reyes at a restaurant on Santa Monica Boulevard in early 1996. In May, they drove to Las Vegas, where they were officially married. Christophe swept Pia off her feet and into his lavish lifestyle. Though she kept her apartment, the two often stayed in a suite at the Regent Beverly Wilshire Hotel, where they hosted extravagant parties. He drove a Ferrari, she drove a Jaguar. Christophe kept them bankrolled by posing as a French investor while out on the town. He solicited business deals with wealthy men, friends of friends who never knew exactly who he was, and kept whatever money he could seize from the phony arrangements. Christophe also swindled his wealthy friends, accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans predicated on payback promises that Christophe never intended to keep. He told people he would help them open nightclubs and boutiques, renovate restaurants and redesign homes. In return, Christophe received things like his Ferrari or his Versace suits. He even got a friend to bribe a Los Angeles passport clerk to issue him a real American passport. He owed everyone around him extraordinary amounts of money and at least one favor. And if they ever dared to call him out on his behavior, Christoph might turn the tables on them, accusing the people he'd conned 
of the crimes that he had committed. It was a bold strategy, and one that would soon backfire, leading to a full-scale investigation into Kristoff by both the FBI and the LA District Attorney's Office, as well as a raid of his beloved hotel suite. Coming up, Kristoff's time on the West Coast reaches a boiling point. Now, back to the story. From late 1996 through the winter of 1997, Christoph Rokenkor was living the high life in Los Angeles. He hosted parties in his suite at the Regent Beverly Wilshire Hotel and befriended celebrities like Mickey Rourke and Michel Polnareff, a French pop singer. He funded his lavish lifestyle by consistently running the same relatively simple con. He would claim to be a wealthy French investor, put together business deals with rich Angelinos, and pocket whatever money he could get from them. One such scheme involved Christophe partnering with a man named Sharom Masazada, the owner of two Beverly Hills clothing boutiques. Christophe got the Regent Beverly Wilshire to agree to put a clothing boutique in the hotel, a high-end Italian menswear store that would be jointly owned by Christophe and Sharom. With a handshake agreement in place, Christophe ventured out and procured investors, including a woman named Lillian Pino, who gave him more than $125,000 to invest in the store. Sharom also put plenty of his own money into their venture, giving Christophe over $200,000 in cash. Christophe also convinced Sharom to give him $25,000 worth of clothes and a Ferrari. The store never opened, and by the spring of 1997, 29-year-old Christophe's social circle had begun to seriously question their French friend. Though Christophe's friends wanted to confront him about all the money and items he owed them, they often ended up resisting that urge. Christophe was generous when he could be, using small acts of kindness to delay any conflicts regarding his bigger letdowns. Christophe's bodyguard, for instance, had grown particularly frustrated with him as Christophe had promised to get him a green card and never delivered. But the bodyguard, a man named Benny Amwar, decided not to bring up the issue after Christophe told him he could stay at Pierre's old apartment for free while he searched for a new place to live. Benny's faith in Christophe was restored, and as he arrived at the apartment, he felt grateful to have a boss who took care of him. After inspecting the place, however, he found himself more dubious of Christophe than ever before. Inside Pia's old apartment, Benny found several racks of brand new Versace suits, price tags dangling off their sleeves. He also found some handguns and two hand grenades in the wall heater, as well as a couple of rifles with scopes propped up behind the window curtains. Benny left the apartment in a hurry and tried to cut ties with Christoph and Pia. But his hasty exit indicated his knowledge of the weapons in the apartment, which worried Christoph. Rather than wait to get reported, Christoph went to the authorities himself, claiming that the Versace suits in his apartment, valued at $275,000, were stolen 
and that he believed Benny to be the culprit. It was a sloppy, panicked move on Christoph's part. The false accusation angered Benny so much that he ended up going to the police and telling them about everything he'd found in Christoph's apartment, not to mention everything he knew about Christoph's various schemes. The police contacted the FBI and officially opened a full-scale investigation of Christoph Rokenkor. At the end of May 1997, the FBI raided Christoph's suite at the Regent Beverly Wilshire Hotel. They hoped to find the con artist there, or at least a clue as to how to locate him. But all they found was Pia, who stood off to the side, watching in dismay as six sheriff's deputies carried out several boxes of documents, jewelry, and guns. Christoph had been expecting the raid and had already escaped to Hong Kong under the pretense of taking a business trip. He stayed out of the country long enough for authorities to lose any hope of finding him. Eventually, Christoph had come back to Los Angeles to be with his wife and child, and he did so by sneaking in through Vancouver and being driven across the border by friends. He and Pia moved from hotel to hotel, racking up enormous unpaid charges, until eventually, Christoph moved into Mickey Rourke's house, where he hid from the LAPD in plain sight. Though Christoph worked hard to keep the illusion of his lavish lifestyle alive, the cracks in the foundation of his schemes and his mental health were growing larger by the day. Christoph's marriage to Pia was also on shaky ground. During his stay with Mickey, Christoph began having an affair with a woman named Rhonda Rydell. Christoph told Rhonda he was the son of a countess, and throughout their six-month affair, she completely believed that her boyfriend was French royalty. Rhonda accompanied Christoph to restaurants and nightclubs and sat by his side as he made deals with LA's wealthiest men. She didn't know what business Christoph was in, and she rarely understood what was happening at these business meetings because Christoph conducted them in French or Italian. Rhonda also didn't know that Christoph was married and that Pia and their son, Zeus, were staying in an apartment just down the street from Mickey's house. She didn't visit that part of town with Christoph. Instead, the couple went from hotel to hotel, with Christoph once again racking up astronomical bills that would go unpaid. By March of 1998, Christoph felt invincible. He was having an affair right under his wife's nose. He was continuing to fool Los Angeles elite into giving him extraordinary sums of money. And he had evaded capture by the FBI. But once you're on top of the world, the only place left to go is down. On the night of March 14, 1998, 30-year-old Christoph was at the Garden of Eden nightclub in Hollywood when he noticed a muscular man with a ponytail staring at him from a nearby table. Christoph approached the man, and their interaction quickly turned confrontational. The man began screaming at Christoph, telling him he was going to kill him. 
Kristoff's friends, including Mickey Rourke, stopped the fight from getting physical, and Kristoff left the club. The next evening, Kristoff was driving down La Cienega Boulevard, right past his favorite restaurant, Café Maurice, when the man from the nightclub and his friends were getting out of a nearby black Mercedes. Kristoff drove away, and when the men from the previous night noticed, they hopped into the Mercedes and followed him. Kristoff then got a call from his girlfriend Rhonda and told her he was being chased by the men from the club and that she needed to call the police. Before Rhonda could hang up to do so, she heard gunshots from the other end of the line. Kristoff left his car on foot and walked to a nearby sheriff's station, telling the police that he had just been shot at. When the officers went to look at his car, they did find bullet holes, but the bullets had clearly been shot from inside the car, from a Glock pistol that Kristoff did not have a license to carry. Kristoff didn't have any injuries, but a man from another nearby car was later found at a local hospital with a bullet wound in his arm. Kristoff was held for questioning, and when both Pia and Rhonda showed up to support him, it dawned on the women that he had been playing them. Kristoff was held in jail for three months on charges of carrying a concealed weapon as well as passport fraud. Rhonda attempted to stay with him, but ultimately ended their relationship, citing his marriage as her reason for leaving. Pia eventually managed to wrangle together enough money to post a portion of Kristoff's $175,000 bail, and though he was happy to be released from jail, he was scared to live his life as he had been prior to getting locked up. He still engaged in cons, but he traveled with a group of bodyguards and was acutely aware that he was always being watched by the FBI, the LAPD, and a private investigator. When the private investigator got word that Kristoff might be planning to jump bail, he waited outside one of Kristoff's court hearings to follow him in case he tried to escape. But Kristoff and his bodyguards had been prepared for this and shuffled between two rented limousines until the investigator couldn't figure out which one held Kristoff. The PI chose to follow one of the limos, but it got away when he was pulled over by a police officer for speeding. The heat was on Kristoff, and he clearly had to get off the West Coast if he wanted to avoid capture. But he had a stop to make before he skipped town for good. One night in late 1998, Gree Park and her new husband walked into their LA home to find Kristoff and a bodyguard sitting in their living room, a pistol in the bodyguard's hands. Kristoff threatened Gree and her husband and demanded that she hand over their daughter. Gree's new husband, a filmmaker, stayed calm. He offered the men something to drink and then sat down with Kristoff, asking if the two of them could have a conversation. Gree's husband was about to take a risk with Kristoff. He was going to try to use his inflated ego against him. After hearing all about Kristoff from Gree, her new husband had enough information to unofficially conclude 
that he had narcissistic tendencies. Most con artists, as we've covered in previous episodes, can be classified as narcissists. They are obsessed with themselves, absorbed in their own narratives, and view the people around them as nothing more than things to be used. Christoph's childhood experiences of abandonment perfectly set the stage for development of narcissistic tendencies. In his work with narcissists, Dr. Samuel Lopez de Victoria found that children who had dealt with major traumas often felt the need to create a psychological barrier that protects them from outside people because people had proven that they were not to be trusted. This barrier is often called a false persona or a false identity, and it allows the narcissist to change their personality according to the situation at hand. Outsiders never get to know the real narcissist, but the narcissist is insulated from any real pain at the hands of another person. Because narcissists are solely energized by their egos, according to Dr. Lopez de Victoria, there are two main ways in which they engage with others. The first is through aggrandizement, where they demand others feed their egos and make them feel superior. They want to be made to feel special, to feel entitled, to feel important. The second is through victimization, where their egos get fed through sympathy and manipulation. The narcissist positions himself above others by making them feel like they haven't done enough to help them, like they don't truly care about their friend or their partner's suffering. Several times during their relationship, Christoph played the victim to Gris. He wept in church, he wept on her sidewalk, he convinced her that he was a sad, broken man who couldn't survive without her love and support. But Gris' husband got Christophe to leave their family alone through aggrandization. He was a filmmaker, and during their private conversation, he told Christophe he wanted to make a movie about his life. Christophe forgot all about his daughter, the reason he apparently trespassed on their property in the first place, and excitedly started making plans for his biopic. When the con artist left that night, he was in a fabulous mood, blissfully unaware that he had just been given a bitter taste of his own medicine. After dropping in on Gree Park, Christophe and Pia officially left LA, and no one knows exactly where they were for the next several months. There are reports of the couple traveling to Italy, to Saint-Tropez, and there's actual evidence that they spent some time in Nashville. But by late 1999, Christophe, Pia, and young Zeus were settled into an expensive loft in New York City that cost $6,500 per month to rent. Christophe and his family only spent about six months in Manhattan, but Christophe managed to do a fair amount of damage during that time. Though none of his victims have felt safe coming forward with their stories, there are reports of Christophe swindling his landlord out of $20,000, a businessman out of $175,000, a retail store out of $40,000 worth of merchandise, and two more establishments out of $50,000. 
He even seduced an older, wealthy woman, conning her out of $90,000 in cash and $250,000 in stolen watches and jewelry. After such a short time in New York City, the heat was on Christoph again, and he had to get out of town. So, in May of 2000, he moved his family out to the Hamptons, where he would make the most of the summer by chartering helicopters, touring multi-million dollar properties, and of course, swindling gullible, rich East Coasters. All before being arrested once again. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Christophe Rochencourt. We'll cover his time in the Hamptons, the movie that did end up being made about him, and how he's managed to become a free man today despite his insatiable appetite for cons. For more information on Christophe Rochencourt, amongst the many sources we used, we found Vanity Fair's 2007 piece The Counterfeit Rockefeller by Brian Burrow to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parkhouse Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artist was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Hi, it's Alastair. Before I go, I wanted to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.